Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit-take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Uh, so I had therapy today, Amy, and my therapist ended it early and said I should go take a nap. <laughs> that was probably wise in your case. I had nothing. I mean, I had nothing. I have so many things that I was talking about but I had no energy and I didn't want to talk about them. It's just complete overwhelm mixed with, I'm just tired. And while we're, while we're recording right now, the sun has shined and I can feel myself feeling better. And look, I've been in Seattle a long time, but the claustrophobia and the, the heaviness of the clouds and the rain this year has been bad. So I just felt so much overwhelm and I'm, I'm, deeply concerned and following the news in Ukraine. It's just unbelievable and tragic and, and, and not something I think you can turn away from. I think it's important news and important thing to pay attention to, you know, possibly the future of the world or lack of future. Um, not, not to overdo it. I don't think I'm overdoing it maybe at times. So I get, I, I think I get that, but the overwhelm that I'm feeling and not just, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the grief for my sister and all that and um, just overwhelm. And, and I am, I, I pride myself in being a bit of a workaholic overachiever and, and, and then I panic in times like this that I have too many things going on and that I have no room. And then, so when I got on therapy, it was like, <laughs> he had nothing. He just, you need sleep. That's what you need. And I did. I listened to my therapist. I slept for an hour and a half. Yeah. Well, when our... Our nervous system will go into overwhelm and confusion when we're really stressed out. If you feel like you have a lot on your plate, you have a lot of responsibilities, you have a lot in your to-do list, and maybe you've been go, go, going, and then in John's case, he has an undercurrent of grief, of acute grief. Let me preface that by saying acute grief, because I think... Most people, especially by middle age, have some undercurrent of grief because people we know and love start dying. If they, if they hadn't been dying when you were younger, they certainly start in your middle age life, right? And that will definitely play on your ability to handle your normal, quote, normal responsibilities for sure. You know, we, we talk about treat everyone with kindness. You don't know what they're going through. Yes. You also have to um, have grace and patience because I can't sit and explain to every last person I have interactions with how I'm feeling. And I'm in an interesting position. Like this morning I did my show and I hear from hundreds of people. I can't, I can't explain to them that I'm not in the mood to play that song and talk about your dead cat. I, I just, I can't do it today. So I'm, I have this like, I maybe shouldn't be here right now. This maybe, maybe someone else should be doing this show, but I could do the show. I just couldn't do the interaction. So, I, so as an example, I can do parts of my life and then other parts, like I ran today, seven miles. I got back on my training. I've been 
It's been very, even for me who loves to run, I, I you know, I, was, I have a marathon coming up that I'm ready to bail on. And I'm, you, I know, you know me, I don't bail on this stuff. And I said, I don't think so. But I got back, I got back on the horse today. Got and back I, on the treadmill. I got back on the treadmill and ran inside because it's, uh, you know, <laughs> monsoon outside. And so I can do like parts of my day and parts of my relationships and I can, I don't want to say half-ass it. I, I, it kind of is though. Um, I'm putting in as much as I can, but I feel like people aren't going to understand that. I guess I shouldn't care. If they, well, <laughs> but I do he, care. Here's, here's what I always like to ask people. And I think this warrants, you know, everyone stop what you're doing and like, listen to this. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> I was recently told I say that a lot. Listen to me. Then we're going to go into the dramatic theme song from the doctor and the DJ. So, okay, I'm ready. There's a fine, fine line between self-sabotage and self-care. There's a fine line between self-sabotage and self-care. Knowing where that line is, is one of your greatest assets. Knowing like, I need to say no to this. I need to go take a nap. Or are you just sabotaging your responsibilities? Like when you take a mental health day and it's for self-care and it's absolutely a benefit to you, or do you just not feel like doing your shit <laughs> and you're sabotaging your responsibilities? And knowing the line and knowing where it is is one of your greatest assets. Does that make sense? Yes. Now let me think about that. And now, dramatic theme song. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. Today on the Doctor and the DJ podcast, First off, you're going to be listening to the music from the Black Tones. The Black Tones are one of the best bands in Seattle and feature a friend of mine and her twin, Cedric. Eva and Cedric Walker are Black Tones, and they, to me, are the premier band here in Seattle. And they have new music coming out, and we're going to be playing a ton of stuff from them throughout the podcast, as we do. And then at the end of the podcast, we'll be featuring a full-length song, and we're very excited uh, that they're a part of this podcast. And we have the new music. And I'm not saying Kim Warnick is the old music, but Kim's been around. She's seen some shit. She's a legend in this town. Everyone knows Kim. And when we started this podcast, Kim was on my short list of people I just wanted to have a conversation with. So we caught Kim recently uh, from her place and we talk her journey through rehab, the death of her brother, uh, Duff McKagan stories. All kinds of stuff coming up. Do not miss this. Plus, she swears as much as us, so we like Kim Warnick quite a bit. So that's on the way as well here on The Doctor and the DJ. I've had some time to think about that, Amy, and that is really, really well said. Today's nap, today's nap brought to you by Exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> Just mention Dr. and the DJ and get 10% off Exhaustion. Um, 
It was self-care. Yep. I crawled into that bed, turned my phone off, pulled the sheets up to my neck, rain pounding outside. I, I'm going to sleep. And I slept for an hour and a half, got up, ran, and kind of blew off the rest of my work day. Uh, again, see, look, I didn't blow it off. See, I'm already... That's right. You know what I'm saying? I just said it. I just said it. I blew off. Oh, you suck. You blew off the rest of your day. No, I made a conscious decision to not do that. And then we don't have any food in the house. So I went to the store, got the dog, was it the the daycare. I did the things. Here's the thing. I ran the errands. Yeah. Knowing where the line between self-sabotage and self-care is, is so important because then it helps live more intentionally. And right. I think the reason why we have guilt about our self-care and then we constantly sabotage our shit is because we don't know where that line is and we don't know when we're doing which. Does that make sense? And so it's just a big clusterfuck of overwhelm in our heads. Um, you swear this much when you talk to your patients, right? Absolutely. Okay, Actually, good. I had a patient recently tell me that she hired me because I swear. And <laughs> we, she, we never talk about this. She only fun. trusted doctors who swore. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm also qualified and, uh, and I'm my, really good at what I do. But my, yeah. my doctor swears. My therapist swears. Yeah. Uh, makes me feel better about them, that they're humans. So I just, I want to, I'm glad you do that. You would, you would make me very, <laughs> and I'm around Amy a lot. She is a Picasso of swearing. You've had, you listen to this podcast, you know, um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on 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 that fine line. Can I can I give you some examples? Yes, like please. right now. Sure, okay. So, self sabotage right now in the world we're living in might look like this. Okay, you wake up in the morning and turn on the news and stay in bed and overwhelm yourself with the news and get so overwhelmed with the news you can't even like deal. You can't deal with like your breakfast and getting your kid off to school because, oh my God, there's war in Ukraine. And it is horrible and it's important to stay in tune to what's going on, but to let it seep into your life where you can't even fucking get your kids to school. Do you know what I mean? That's sabotage. And I'm not like, there's no shame here at all, but it's important to know. Or if you just, you don't see the point in anything. Like it's hard to, uh, continue to do your job or care for your responsibilities or like that's where we start getting into sabotage and self-care looks like having some hygiene i like using the word hygiene hygiene around uh news intake and hygiene around when you pay attention and and maybe journaling your thoughts about it and then scheduling some time to take a nap or scheduling some time to eat a meal without checking your phone, for instance. So, so you have to work a little harder. See, because self-sabotage is also easy. Oh, it, yeah. It's so much easier. Yeah. Can I mention, this is the same, maybe you're going to get to social media, but that's what I did. There, there was two things I did today. The mm-hmm. easier thing was when I got done with my show, I don't check the news. I'm like, I couldn't do a show. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I needed to catch up. And I follow a bunch of people from Ukraine now and they're just amazing and they're heroes to me. And I just, I worry about them now. So I, I like look at their account, make sure they're alive. Right. That's why I went there. Half hour passed just with the scrolling, just sitting there scrolling. And later I said five minutes before you work out, just check the news, see if, see if things happened or you know, just get it out of your system. And I did that. That was harder because I had to schedule it. I think about it. Then I had to turn it off after five minutes. What was easier was the half hour and the more dangerous thing. 
Right. But it is that mindfulness piece, right? Yeah. So for me, self-care is in the mornings. I don't check the news or check social media or check my email or any of that for about an hour. You don't have like an itching? You don't have like a, oh, I got to. No. I got to check it. No, I used to, and I don't have that habit anymore. But you used to have it. I broke the habit, and I broke the habit, and instead I Mm. journal, and I meditate, and I drink my coffee, Mm -hmm. and I read books, like out of books, like made from paper. In the morning. In the morning. I bet there's a very small percentage of people listening who who start their day, able to do that. Right, and I carve out the time. (laughs) That's awesome. And I... I don't think it's good for the first thing in the morning to like check news no. and check social media and check email. I don't think it's good for the nervous system, quite mo- honestly. I think, I think, think it's terrible. Do. I think most of us do it. And I think it's not good. It's no, not I don't healthy. Think it's good. Yeah. So the doctor recommends don't do that. Let's just pause. Let's have some dead air for people to just think that through for a second. Your world without waking up and going right to social media, right to your email, Right to your messages, right to the news. You don't go right to it. No. Okay, think on that for a little while. Sometimes I don't even check the text from you that you're safe at the station. Without that first. one, that one's no good. I don't like that at all. I don't like I don't like texting the void. I'm not <laughs> avoiding your text. I think I'm just I'm so I've so gotten into this routine. I know. I'm kidding. Yeah. I get it. I get it. But then you send me emoji hearts and everything's better. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll check the message to make sure you're safe at the station. Then I'll give you emoji hearts yeah. and emoji kissies yeah, yeah, yeah. and emoji lovies yeah, yeah. and That's hugs nice. and stuff. Yeah, hugs and, yeah. and, then, and then I put my phone away. <clears throat> yeah. But then sometimes you'll text me and wonder if I'm alive because yeah, I yeah, never responded because I was so into my routine. Yeah, there's a, there's a moment where I got I to gotta hear from you. Yeah. Share everything. But I think that we think it makes us feel safer to be constantly checking that shit. Yeah. And it's actually having detrimental effects on our nervous system and our subconscious mind. And therefore, I don't think it's healthy either to stick your head in the sand and not know what's going on in the world. So it's finding that balance and allowing yourself to be a normal human being and live your normal privileged life, even when there's a war going on. I think some people have like guilt yeah. For being privileged and not in a war-torn country. Right. And so you you sort of feel like, I can't give a shit about, you know, my work. Or, like, if you have toddlers, oh, my God. The shit the toddlers will put you through will just seem asinine. It seems asinine anyway. But especially if there's, like, some trauma going on. Oh, my God. But the the reality is, is that your life is your life. And you aren't in a war-torn country right now. Most of you, unless you're in the Ukraine, right? Or if you're in some somewhere else areas, in the world, yeah. some yeah, other areas of the world yeah. that are going through this. And, and so you, you can't stop your life and then have a huge impact. But you can do little things and you can do what you can do, right? Like help your community, do something. You know, one of the best solutions to quelling anxiety is helping somebody. How do you, how do you, how do you do that in your everyday life? I do. I have an outlet uh-huh. every day to help people. How, how do you, I have an outlet, you know, in my job, but what yeah, I as would, a doctor, really? No, I know. I, know. I would actually <laughs> ask that you go a step further. Okay. My grandfather used to say he'd wake up every morning mm-hmm. and before his feet hit the floor, he would, he was re- kind of a religious spiritual guy. 
he would say a brief prayer for God to tell him who to help today. And then he'd say, sometimes my bladder would win and I'd have to go <laughs> pee first. But, you know, and that was his like little personal prayer every morning. Yeah. And he told me that. And, you know, I, I certainly, I don't do that every day. I really don't, but I do journal and have intention in my day. But I, it's, it's kind of nice if that helps any one that's, yeah. that's a nice little, you okay. know, like ask for inspiration or ask yourself, your intuition, whatever your belief system there is. You yeah. There you go. There you go. So what I'm saying is like, not, I'm lucky every day I get to start in my show is how am I going to connect with people? How am I going to help them through their day? How am I going to, so I have it every day, right? So I'm thinking if you don't have that every day, a particular job, for instance, if you wake up every day, your practice can be, who am I going to help or how am I going to help? So you don't have to like wake up and donate money or time at six in the morning. You know what I mean? Like I'm being practical. What can, can someone do if that is so healthy? How do you get into your daily practice? And maybe I think that might be one way to do that. Yeah, I, I do. I think setting an intention like that for the day. And honestly, when you can offer help or support or service to another human being in any way that you can, that does help immensely with anxious thoughts and, and feeling helpless and overwhelmed. It, and it does wonders for mental health. You know, you know, people, you know, people will always talk about meditation and, and a lot of people can't apply that to their life or think they can't, you can, um, but the journaling's the one mm-hmm. you hear about it. You're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Journal. Yeah. I'm going to do that. And then I just, I don't know what it is about that for the longest time. And I like, that's not going to help or I'm not going to, well, Amy got me this journal. It's over here to my left. It's very nice. Mm-hmm. It's got little stars on it and, um, it's a game changer. I'm sorry. It is. I know it's cliche or it's, you know, you hear that, but if you trust us at all, you should write some shit down. You should write some shit down. It helps so much because for me being also, you know, ADHD, it's, it's, I also need to remember, um, some things like what are my intentions? I need to look back at it sometimes for me. So it it works out for me. Um, but if you have this, this practice in the morning that will help get that out Yeah. too. That's right. I didn't do any of this over the last, uh, since my sister died, by the way, I have not journaled once. I have not meditated once. I have completely self-sabotaged that part of my life. And I don't know if that's on purpose. I don't think I want to sit with my thoughts right now. I don't think I want to sit with my words. That's got to be it. And I'd rather do anything else. Anything else sounds better to me. Yeah. Well, that's just your nervous system (laughs) keeping you safe from having to process the grief, you know? That's pretty much straightforward. That's a textbook right out of the... Yeah, you're uh, right out of the uh, yeah. textbook. Just look but it up right here. And... Just, yep. I, it's in my brain somewhere. It's textbook. <laughs> textbook. Um, if you get anything out of our podcast today, I would say give yourself grace. Give other people grace. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Stay curious and empathetic. And then go get a journal and try to figure out where that self-sabotage, self-care line is, and start giving yourself a lot more self-care so that you don't sabotage. Okay, I'm going to start again tomorrow. There's always tomorrow, first day of the rest of my life. That's right. My grandfather said that too. Turn the page on the textbook.
more black tones here on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. And as we said, we have a little bit of the new music and a little bit of the old music. Kim Warnick joining us today on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. She was in the Fastbacks for 100 years and uh, one of the longest running bands here in Seattle. I got to know her uh, more when she was in the band Visqueen for a few years. Uh, we had a lot of good times. And um, she started way back, what, 1979 with the Fastbacks? Yeah, 43 years. Yes. That's how old 19... we are this year. 43 years old. Wow. Fastbacks have been playing and any musician or any music fan here in Seattle appreciates and loves the Fastbacks. That's just, that's just, that's just a thing. It always has been. And uh, I, I remember going to one of my first shows here. I didn't even know. I just was told, go see them. And so I just did that when I moved you here. You came here from Spokane, is that right? I, I came from Spokane and music was the reason I, I came over here. Um, I had seen the Screaming Trees and Love Battery over uh, at the Met. And I had already like was getting into music, but, and then my brother lived here and he was sending me all these tapes of all these, uh, amazing bands. He'd go to Orpheum and get tapes and send them my I way. I miss that place. All those record stores are so great. Yeah. And Kim, you've, you've, you've been here, you know, you've been in the Seattle area for many years. You've seen a lot of change. I was born and raised. I was going to ask. Yeah. Born and raised in Seattle. And you don't run into that a ton. No, we all were. All Fastbacks were born and raised here. Can you talk about Seattle in that time, like that time period for you when, when you started playing music, you were playing in, you know, in this band, how old were you at that, at that time? I actually started playing in a band called the radios and that was right after high school. This is before the fastbacks. And that was 1978. I graduated in 1977. So my first band was this band called the radios. We never recorded. I was the only girl in the band playing bass and guitar, but, I would say the music was kind of like Blondie. We had a Farfisa player. It was really great, awesome, happy music. And then after that, I think I might have got kicked out. I forget the singer was, he wanted to change everything to reggae or something. He's, he's still a friend of mine. He's awesome. But uh, it's like, I don't know, maybe I dismissed myself. I don't remember. But at that point, that's when the Fastbacks kind of started. Yeah. 79. And so 79, what kind of, what are we looking at for clubs around town? Like, where are you playing? So a lot of bar bands playing covers. You know, we didn't yeah. fit in that. We didn't really fit in any of these scenes. And so people were starting to book halls. So you could book a IOGT hall or VFW hall and get some friends to play. And that's kind of how it started. And um, there wasn't a lot going on. You know, we, we had to make your own thing happen. And, there was a small scene at that point, but it was kind of like a ghost town, I guess you'd say. But of course, you know, I liked it because we knew everybody. You know, the people that would come see us were the people that were also playing that night. It's the kind of thing, you know, you just, it's the, a very small community at that point. But, you know, we, and also they would have like thing like every Tuesday night would be original music night at some bar, you know. But I mean, thank God, because we would play that and, you know, nobody really liked us very much in the beginning. We were not, we didn't really know how to play very well because we didn't. And um, I would say that once Duff McKagan joined our band on drums and relieved Kurt Locke, who was actually the first drummer, he wasn't that good then. He's gotten better, but he's a guitar player. So finally, you know, Duff turns out lives around the corner from what we call the Fastback House where me and Lulu live. And I met him. I picked him up from high school once it's a funny story and and he i said do you play drums i took him home and i said we live right around the corner 
and your name's Duff. That's a weird name. And uh, he said, yeah, I play drums. But he didn't. He lied to me because he just wanted to play in our band. <laughs> but he was better than Kurt at that time. So it's like I think the first song we played with him was, of all things, Baby Blue by Badfinger. Random. <laughs> Not an easy song. I, I'm sure we didn't really do a good version, but he did pretty good, I guess. Good enough to join. So Kurt Blocko ends up being one of the most legendary musicians. He got bumped. He got bumped for Duff. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, Kurt was more than happy to get on his real instrument. And that made us a little better. And then, so Duff was on our first single that we put out. And then also Duff, he was in the band for a year, but he was also in like a million other bands. They played like one show, you know, just, just a cover band for one night or something. Just fun stuff, playing a bunch of punk songs. And we never heard from Duff McKagan again. That's sad. Yeah, it's never sad. I mean, I was like, you're going to quit our band? I hope, good luck to you, my friend. Yeah. I hope you yeah. do well. Yeah. Whenever we were in, yeah. um, we played Vancouver, Canada a lot. And we that was more our, whatever reason, that was a better community for the kind of music we played. You know, as people weren't so quick to put you in a box. Like, it could be hardcore. It could be like what we were, which wasn't hardcore. We, I don't even know. But we'd go up there a lot. And I remember one time we were doing a radio interview and they said to Duff, what's something that you hope could happen in your life? He's like, I just want somebody to be able to carry my equipment. Like, well, now you have trucks that do that. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. When did you, like, when you see Duff in Guns N' Roses, like, did you know before all everyone else knew they were massive or... Did you or or did you just see it like everybody else? I don't know what. Interestingly enough, the the very first show out of town was playing with us. We opened, and it was at the Gorilla Gardens, a rock theater, and they actually it's well documented in a couple books where they it was their first show out of town, come up to Seattle, but unfortunately their van broke down a hundred miles out of L.A. and so all those five guys on the side of the road they hitchhiked and they got in a big trucker van like a big you know, semi. And that's this guy took him all the way to Portland. And then a friend came down and picked him up. And then they played through our gear that night. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I don't I hardly remember that night. It was just all Duff's friends and people from our community, but um, they were good. It's just then, you know, he went back to LA and we'd go stay with him sometimes when we'd be on tour. And, you know, he would call me like, Kim, it's weird. Things are getting kind of weird for us. Like businessmen are taking us out to lunch and drinks. Like what? Yeah, people in suits. Like what's going on, Doc? Because they were starting to get gigantic. And then you know you start hearing about it. But then once uh, that record came out, Sweet Child of Mine was playing out of every car that drove by that summer. Like, Doc, you know yeah. you're famous. He's like, I know it's cool. It's so weird. And you know he's still the same. Sometimes think of him as that same kid I met. You know, still super excited about it all. Better than he's ever been, mm-hmm. I think. So it's it's really cool to have seen how this all happened. And, and I will never forget when he said, you know what, I'm moving away. His girlfriend, something happened, they broke up, and then a couple people died. The heroin stuff was starting in the early 80s. And he's like, I'm going to L.A. And he said, okay, I'll see you later. I'll see you in a week or a month. <laughs> in fact, I went down and stayed at him with his. And he also, before they had a lot of money, he was staying in a just a regular apartment but Sly Stone lived upstairs, and he was running a rock house out of his house. Crap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, this is so Los Angeles. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know the thing with Duff too that that he's a good dude, man. I I just I can't. Yeah, he gives he gives back so much, and he is just yeah. I mean, to me, he's kind of like I feel like he's my brother. I feel like he's my younger brother. We still talk a lot, you know, and text a lot, and funny things happen all the time on text. But yeah, he's very close to me still. He's very, um, it's been documented too, helping people with their sobriety and very much involved in, in the sober community. And, and, and um, can you talk about that a little bit as well? Have, have you ta- I'm sure you've talked about that. He helped Mark Lanigan a lot. Yep. Um, and Mark actually was staying in his house in L.A. Well, yeah, he's helped out a lot of people. He doesn't really talk about it that much. You know, him and Jerry Cantrell are really close friends. But yeah, you know, I think that's kind of what you do. If you're lucky enough to get sober, you try to help people out however you can. Whether it's just, you know, taking a phone call from somebody who doesn't know what to do or whether maybe you're a sober companion. Fly somebody to the other side of the country. I did that recently, which was a really cool thing to do. So I guess you just try to, you know, talk to people if they want to talk to somebody. It's that easy. Can you talk more about going across the country? Oh, yeah. So a friend of mine called me and said, hey, there's a guy that he can't stop drinking. He's saying he's going to kill himself. And, and so I said, well, yeah, I don't. Do I know him? I, no, but, you know, I knew her. And so anyway, one thing led to another. I talked to him. We started talking and such a great guy I was in a band from Olympia at one point. And so, you know, I kind of it certainly wasn't me doing this. There's a there's a whole team of people that got him out there. But I was able to hook him up with Music Cares to get the money going. That happened right off the bat. And then I got him to the place I went to, which was called the Plymouth House in New Hampshire, which to me was the one that made the most sense to me because I'd been to two other ones. and Maybe I was just ready. Who knows? But it was a, it was a pretty amazing journey because luckily his family were very involved and the sister works in recovery. So... It was almost so easy, uh, but I had to deal with like the courts because he was trying to kill himself. And anyway, at the end of the day, we got on an airplane and I took him all the way out to Boston. It was so cool. And you know, I didn't even know this guy, but it doesn't matter. I knew him because he's a fucking total drunk, you know, and he couldn't stop drinking. And and like, well, I hear you. Let's let's go for a plane ride, whatever. So that was a lucky thing for me and um i'm so glad that happened and now he's in portland maine where i went to when i left the plymouth house i went into sober living in portland maine so he's kind of following my path and he's loving it i was going to ask about your time over there i remember you were gone for a while and six years and and yeah and people are people you know and people aren't in your shit like they don't know exactly what you're doing you know so but i remember hearing like yeah is did she disappear you're skip- <laughs> <laughs> she might as well. I mean, I would joke to people out there, like, I worked in call centers out there, and they would start to know, like, a tour with Pearl Jam, or they like, you know, these people. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm friends with them, and but they just didn't understand, which is fine. And then I would just say, you know, I'm not supposed to talk about this. This is witness protection, so I'm sorry. <laughs> this is such a crazy thing. Like, somebody from Seattle is going to go live in Portland, Maine. That's pretty much yeah. the end of the world out there. Other than Alaska, the one side, and then Florida, but I wouldn't go down there. No offense. I, I, but you know. I, I remember I remember hearing that, and it was said like that. I don't know. I heard she's in Maine or some shit, and you'd be like, what? No, that's not. 
And the funny thing is, Fastbacks had played in Maine twice. <laughs> First time I don't remember because we just did some club tour. But the the time I do remember is we played with Pearl Jam. We were doing an East Coast leg of the tour before we went to Europe. And uh, the reason I remember that night is because Dennis Rodman flew in. And I didn't know who he was because I don't know about sports. And they're like, you don't know Dennis Rodman? <laughs> He's got tattoos. Like, so? I don't understand. Why is that popular? Is it, doesn't everybody I know? But he's a basketball guy. I didn't know anything about this. And I think I might have freaked Dennis Rodman out because I think I talked <laughs> to him a little bit afterwards. And I don't, I'm pretty sure I was drunk. But I know he carried Eddie around for, uh, they did a live. So he seemed nice to me. But I think those guys were more than happy to get me out of the, the green room when he was back there. <laughs> Sorry, Dennis. I'm a little too much for some. But Portland, Maine was amazing. I was, I'm so happy I landed there. What a great little town. Yeah, I was going to ask, what about Portland, Maine, Scream's Sober House? Oh, well, um, it was amazing. And uh, I did get kicked out of two of the Sober Houses for drinking. So there's that, um, which certainly is not unusual. Uh, it wasn't my plan, but, you know, I was kind of finding my way out there. And my drinking out there was certainly not like Seattle drinking because I was also trying to hide it from people out there, which is really fucked up. But but I finally got my footing. And uh, what happened to me is my brother died in 2014. He was hit by a car walking the dog in a four-way stop, and they died. And uh, that was 2014, and that's when I just said, that's it. And I haven't drank since. And by the way, John, I want to say, you know, about your sister. Just thinking of you, that resonated with me in ways, you know. That's kind of what I, I would have done to my my brother. So I did try to take my own life, and so I just try to think of like what that looks that looked at like that to my family and my friends. Awful. Yeah, it is. A, it was a a slow suicide, you know. And and she didn't come. She wasn't able to to stop. She just she 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 couldn't stop. Well, she she was older and than you, right? Your older sister. Younger. Mm -mm, younger. Did she have any periods of sobriety? Um, so she, I don't think she did, you know, and I, 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 it was hard because her husband wanted, wanted that to be the truth. And so we'd hear from him and say, yeah, she sobered up a bit. And, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think he's in denial. And looking back, I think he knows that too. And, but for the last 10 years, like my mom died in 2004. And from then on, I think it was just starting to get worse and worse. Um, and we have alcoholism rampant through my family. And I just never, I just didn't think Lee, I didn't think, I don't know. I just didn't, I thought if like the boy, I was, I guess being sexist. I don't know. I was just seeing it like, oh, us boys. Cause in the Richard's house, it was mostly men. No, I, I understand. So I just, you know, I think that um, in families, we're never prepared to, well, to lose anybody, but for instance, my mom died when she was 63, and I always thought she'd live longer than my dad. Not that I was yeah. wanting one to live longer. I wanted them to both live longer, but I always find it interesting. We, they don't, people don't die in the order you need them to die. Weird thing to say, but, you know, it just doesn't occur to you that that could be a truth that's coming up. Yeah, and as you know, losing a, a sibling is, is an Amy. She's lost two. You lose that connection to your, your past. Like, yeah. you they rolled with you during that time. If you like it or not, that's the person who was with you through a lot of stuff, most likely. Good or bad? 
And for me, I mean, I was an only child until I was 12. And then my brother shows up. And I was so excited. And we never, ever, probably because of the age difference, I kind of helped raise him as well. You know, I, because of me, he got to find out what the real good music is. And, you know, and we take him to movies. And, uh, yeah. but, you know, he, he knew so much kind of more about our, our family's history than I did. And now my dad, my brother, and my mom are gone. So it's really weird to try to figure out, mm-hmm. you know, history. They were kind of the ones that knew that stuff. I was kind of out there in the ether all the time, you know, doing what I was yeah. doing. So, yeah, it's weird. Amy, you lost somebody? I got Yeah, I, my brother and my sister died. Yeah, it's really, it just cuts you off of the knees, kind of. Yeah. And, you know, my brother died when I was 10 and he was 18. And um, I, yeah, I mean, it changes you no matter when, how old you are, right? But at 10 years old, I went into adolescence with a very different point of view of the world than some of the kids I, I was around. And it changed me profoundly, you know. And I remember a teacher saying to me, you're so dark, you wear black all the time, and you you used to be happy, and you never smile. And I just was like, fuck you, man. My brother died. What the fuck? You know? Yeah, <laughs> so no, I mean, like, I'll it, never it, forget that. It, it is, that is a really interesting way to think about it, because, you know, Kyle, was he 35? I'm, I'm so bad with birthdays, so forgive me, Kyle. I don't know how old, but I mean... He was way too young. And it was so surreal being so far away from the event. You know, I got a phone call. He's been hit. He's in the hospital. I guess I figured, oh, maybe he broke his leg or something. But he, the woman, uh, he flew up over the car and landed on the back of his head. So his brain was gone. So they kept him alive for three days because they harvested organs. He was an organ donor. So somebody in Washington State is walking around with his heart. Huh. Wow. Do you know how to find well, that person? Well, I don't know. I want to say, like, I don't know if it's a woman or a man, but I wonder if maybe I picture a scenario where it's a couple, uh, maybe the the guy has Kyle's heart, and the guy says, you know what, I, I need to go to Disneyland. And she's like, well, you never cared about Disneyland, because Kyle was a Disneyland fanatic. So he's like, I just, I just feel like I want to go now. I just feel different. That's what I like to think. Who knows? So when he passed, you think that was the the thing that that made you want to get sober? Yeah, it did. I mean, I guess for him, I could to honor him, but also for me, I mean, I could, you know, I was playing with fire. You know, I basically died from this stuff. So uh, it was just kind of kind of crystallized the whole the whole point. It's sad that that's what it takes, but you know, that's what it took, and it's what happened. Part of me is like, how do you, how do you not an alcoholic in in the world? You know, you 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 were in the music scene and you bartended. What's interesting at the, about that is that, I mean, I was more into like shooting drugs, more you know, in the early '80s, shooting cocaine and eventually heroin. But my bandmates were mortified, so I was I was embarrassed to be doing that. I didn't think it was cool. I wasn't trying to be like Johnny Thunders, like yeah, I'm all fucked up. It, I I was was embarrassed to be quite honest, that I was doing that. So luckily it was a little different than, you know, my band was completely against it. You know, there was a lot that went on there, but I tried to try to show up most of the time. 
it was really hard for a lot of, for a lot of years there. I mean, there's still some records I listen to where I can tell that I'm loaded. That's, but it's, it's, it's like a living diary, you know, that I can listen to and like, Oh, I was high, you know, but you know, and it also, everybody was drinking back in those early nineties. You know what I mean? That was a wild time. Most people didn't have kids yet, but, uh, I noticed quite early on that I was drinking another margarita while everybody else was signing their check to go. I still had to have more. I knew it was worse than other people in my band. So, but again, I, you know, I was, did it, but everybody else was doing it. But, you know, at some point it just got to the point where I couldn't even really, I was a high functioning alcoholic until I wasn't, let's put it that way. I was going to say like the being in that scene can feed on that. But then again, you were in a band where that wasn't causing this. So these, no, but this, you know this was already here. Right. But I had my friends in this scene and then my friends in the fast pass and that whole scene, they weren't doing it. So, you know, uh, I mean, I went to my first rehab in 1989 for heroin and I never did it again. I was, you know, I was terrified of needles, which is not good if you're a heroin addict. So, yeah. I mean, I was kind of like a Woody Allen, like a nervous freak out. I was always afraid I was going to overdose. I was probably not fun to do heroin with because I was, I guess I was always kind of afraid of dying, but I sure loved the feeling, you know, and even since, you know, um, I've had to have surgeries. I broke my shoulder or my arm in 2019 when I moved home in the snow. I had to have a shoulder replacement and I knew there the good drugs were coming because it was a long recovery. And I was, I gotta say, I was psyched. But of course, I got strung up in those. But I didn't, um, I never went out and searched for anything more. I knew once they were gone, that was it. I was gonna be sick. I'll just get an electric blanket and hide for a few days. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that. Once you have surgery and you're given, you know, fentanyl or some of the oxy, and, and do you worry? Uh, I might have. Did I get dilated right off the bat? It was something good, like, oh. And I would try to act like, don't get excited. And they'd be like, okay, you're going to, do you know how to, this is, you're going to have to take this many. Let me tell you how to do it. And I'm thinking, oh, just give me that bottle. I know how to do it. All of them. <laughs> yeah. I was always really psyched once I got, once I went to the pharmacy and saw what they were giving me. And then I also knew, have fun because it's going to be awful whenever those things run out. But I kind of had to. Yeah. Were you, are you worried that you get uh, addicted to them after surgery? Uh, no, because I knew I was too afraid to go out there and do it again. So I just figured it's real. It did hurt. It was a major, it's a major surgery, a new shoulder. So, I mean, I took them pretty responsibly, I have to say. But, you know, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't pretty psyched that, you know, <laughs> once I broke it and I knew they had to replace it, like, Something good's coming along. I mean, that's just the fucked up part of it, being an addict. I can't help that. But I mean, I didn't go out and try to find something on the street. It's like, this is dead end. I took the last six and like, well, ouch, that's going to be bad. But you know. You had health issues before that too. I remember going, Oh yeah. I don't remember early aughts. Didn't, I believe they found a tumor. It was like up against your spine. On my spine. Yeah. And so uh, my right leg didn't work. And so I was in a wheelchair for a little bit and then finally went into the hospital and they did an MRI and they found him. And I remember the surgeon was really mad at me because he's like, I can't tell you for sure. They were going to operate in the morning. He said, I can't tell you for sure you're going to be able to walk again because you waited too long. Why did you do that? And I said, 
just get out of here. I'm reading. Because so they'd already given me something. It's like, just, and you know, don't do that to your surgeon. Because that guy's going to change your life. And here I am just saying, just please leave me. I'm reading. Anyway, I know they were very, they couldn't believe that I, my leg actually worked. I could see it in their poker faces when they, when I came to. But it took me a month to learn how to walk again. I mean, I, I was in the hospital for a month. Again, good drugs. Dilaudid. I'm just saying, you know, got to find the, the, the silver lining in some bad things. So that's how I do it. Well, one thing for me, Kim, is that y- you tell these stories matter-of-factly. You have quite a history. And you've seen some shit, for sure. Um, you've gone yeah. through rehab. You've gone through these surgeries. This recent, kind of recent shoulder injury when you fell. I'm, um, you Rehab, losing family members. Yeah, I left Maine to get away from the snow because I broke my ankle out there and sprained it. So, like, let's get home before I break my hip like an old lady and then get pneumonia and die. That's going to be the next thing. <laughs> so let's, let's get her home. And I, all the people in the call center is like, they made fun of me because they always thought it snowed really bad out here. I said, no, it doesn't snow. It snows maybe once every six years. And so when I broke this, they were like, what the fuck you said? It didn't snow. And I know I get it. It's ironic. But it happened to me. <laughs> Things happen to me. But, you know. I love your outlook, though. I just, I, I and it, it, I don't know if it's an outlook. Uh, just, I'm a big fan of who you are oh, well, as a person. You. And your energy and just how, how I've, you just, you've always been uh, super nice to me and, and I always love talking to you. And, and I just, I always feel like there's people who've gone through some stuff and it ends them. Right. And there's others who kind of come out and I feel like you've had that throughout this personality and this way of viewing things. It feels like you've had that through these things, not at the maybe end of these things. I feel like some people may were, maybe were kind of bummers to begin with. I don't know. I mean, that's not very nice, but I mean, I've kind of always been a pretty happy-go-lucky person. I was a spoiled kid till I was 12, then I got a brother that I got to name and I had fun with, and, you know, and I was in this band. I mean, it was pretty easy. Even the parts that were hard, and some of them were very bad, I always felt like it's going to be okay. But I'm glad I have that. I still have that. Generally, things are going to be okay, as long as I'm kind of doing something okay. I know how to screw shit up, trust me, if I want to. That can happen right now, but I choose not to. That's a good, I mean, it's a good outlook. <laughs> but also, I'm, I'm a pretty happy person in general. So, I mean, it's not, I'm not struggling on that at all. You know, I, I have some really good lifelong friends. My bandmates still ground me. We still are doing stuff. We're recording some vocals for some uh, tribute record. We did that Go-Go's thing. We're doing one. Did that Go-Go's thing come out? By the way, is it out, out? We were. I just talked to the guy. So it's a double record, but because the vinyl plants are all fucked up and it's it's so delayed now, he finally, it's going to come out, but he just said, fuck it, I'm going to put out a CD first. So that's on the way to me. And I told him to send one to you, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah, Marco and I fell in love with that cover. So anyway, we're do, we still do stuff. You know, we did an in-store, we played acoustic show at Easy Street a while back. Our first time ever doing that. Terrifying, but it was... Wow. Yeah. They re, they reissued um, a Zucker. So Easy Street and Sub Pop got together and put that out on vinyl. So we did that. So we're doing stuff. Just You know, we're, we're kind of in that we do stuff, but we don't have to do it. We do it because it's still fun. When things started to blow up in Seattle and you were playing shows, and did it become 
serious for the band? Were you like suddenly like, oh, okay, this is serious time. There's actual people. Or- no, I don't think we've ever been very serious about it. We got better at it and we definitely took it seriously. You know, we never wanted to be terrible. We did a couple tours in the 80s just down to LA, but we didn't go to New York till like 1991, maybe. But at that point, we started touring kind of a lot. And, you know, we weren't under pressure by sub pop or, you know, we just kind of did our own thing always. They liked the fact that we would just give them a record and they just put it out. You know, there was, we were kind of low maintenance, I suppose you could say. We're a very self-contained band. We do it all in-house and they got to put it out and it all worked out. So there's no pressure to, you know, get on these bigger tours. It wasn't like that for us. We wouldn't have done it. Well, then you ended up like, as you mentioned, touring with Pearl Jam and with um, yeah. some of the, you know, you played with Joan Jett and the Ramones and all kinds yeah. of different I mean, bands. We did and... get to do some of the coolest stuff. And we did go to Japan uh, with the Sub Pop Lane Fest, which was amazing. It's us, Super Suckers, Seaweed, and this band from Japan, Super Snaz, a little band that Kurt produced their record. And that was the coolest thing, because all I've ever wanted to do since I was six or seven is be Japanese or go there. Really, that's why I dyed my hair black. I really just wanted to be that. And so once we went there, it's like, oh, my God, it's everything. I It's Blade Runner times 10, and it's I should be here forever. And everybody's so nice, and they just can't believe that you're in this band. And it was, it was my version of being in the Beatles for, you know, three days. <laughs> no, I'm just listening to all these stories, and what I'm gathering is just your outlook is just that you don't have any desire to force anything or try uh, make something that's not and just kind of allow the band and allow your life and just kind of. Well, a lot of that, trust me, a lot of that is also laziness <laughs> that figures, you know, I mean, being honest, I'm, I'm a very lazy person. I really <laughs> like doing nothing. In fact, I'm making it an art form, especially over the pandemic. I've gotten really good at it. So usually it takes Kurt Block to kind of, start putting things together like hey you want to come over i've got this idea here's this new song like okay and i'm i'm always happy to do it but i'm not going to be the one saying let's do something new i'm just happy to not do it i love it <laughs> you were built for the pandemic i saw some of your posts they made me laugh because they were i like, really was i yeah. really was and honestly ready. i'm a fan of the telephone i like talking on the phone and i think i brought back the telephone uh in the pandemic because my thing was i should probably try to call on the phone like two or three people during the day so i don't go completely crazy and people are like oh my god it's so nice to talk to somebody like i know it's what i've been trying to tell people all my life but like i only text like okay whatever about you but the other thing i appreciate about you being a, a born and raised seattleite is nobody appreciates the weather more than kim warnick in this oh time. i knew we were getting the oh weather. yeah oh i live for your posts I love them. She like posts the radar and it's all just red and green and shit. It's like a monsters attacking like kind of weather. And everyone's like, oh, more rain. He's like, bring it. This is the best. Yes. It's really weird that uh, the older I've gotten, uh, I'm 62. First of all, so when I was 12, we moved in the house that basically I lived in. That You know, my parents had this house forever and they put in a swimming pool. And people are like, nobody has swimming pools in Seattle. Well, yeah, they, the person across the street had one and next door to us had one. So that's actually a thing people did. But I love laying out in the sun. And I would, it was 70, so I'd put baby oil on. You know what I mean? The whole thing. Still don't have skin cancer. Crazy. Knock on wood. <laughs> um, but somehow, I think just 
the older I've gotten, I don't have the same relationship to, to hot weather, weather at all. I hate it. And so I like the fall and the winter the most. I don't like snow, but I love when it gets dark early. I know people hate that. I'm living in fear of the spring and summer, just so you know. And this weekend, we got to change the clocks. I'm already mad about that, you know. And so when it's raining like that, I'm just like, this is the best thing ever. I can read better when it's pouring down rain. And it reminds me of Christmas because my brother was a big Christmas fanatic. So am I. So I love that time period. I feel my parents and my brother around me at that time. So, yeah, I'm happy for everybody that it's going to be nice again pretty soon. But know that I'm going to be here waiting for that 112 day coming up. And I'm going to have to just be careful so I don't go crazy. Just get tired of the sunlight every day. Every day, which is what people think of the rain every day. So I'm the same as these people, but opposite. How do you view your your city and and all the change in this in this town? Are you do you roll with it? Do you? Well, it's interesting. I did get to take a break from it for six years when I was out in Maine. Uh, I did come home every Christmas, so I would see you know the changes, and um, so I did get a break to see what it looked like again, you know, from new eyes, kind of, sure. but. Um, I'm just used to it. I'm glad that I know how fun it was to go to Herfie's hamburgers. Just the cool things I got to do in the city, then those places are gone. But I don't know. I don't really go out much. So, And I live in West Seattle, so I really don't go out much. You know, who am I talking to? Yeah, Preaching exactly. to the choir. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. For anyone out there, and we've talked a little bit about it. It's I'm an tr- island. I try to explain it to people outside of <laughs> Seattle on the air. I try to explain I try to say, well, it's really like Brooklyn, but like instead of a subway, it's hard. How was it described back in the day? Like before I got here, like what was it like? I don't know. 80s, name your time. But like how was West Seattle looked like then? Is it like now? I never went. Yeah, I've never been. I lived on like Capitol Hill. I lived kind of in like View Ridge. I don't really know. But, you know, I always drove. So I would drive everywhere, but I never had a reason to go to West Seattle. In fact, I don't even know the first time I went to West Seattle, but now I'm, I love that I'm out here. I don't drive. So for me, it's like, nobody's going to oh, drive me not. home at the end of the night. Oh yeah. You're not going anywhere. Nobody I know lives here, not, you if you don't, yeah, you're never leaving here. I, my dream still is to get a, not, not, it doesn't have to be a daily weather report, Kim, but one day. Yeah. Like an occasional one. Yeah. Like, like when it's like a serious problem, like, yes, you know, maybe yeah. something like it's 113 degrees. Yeah. Tell them you. I'll come on. I will come on and just say what the fuck. This is bullshit. Uh, that's what I want. You know, well, I've got that in spades. You know that. Maybe that's my little deal. I'll be like that... the person on Howard Stewart on every now and then and just says some weird shit about the weather. But yes, and here it's not live. So I, I, the more swearing, the better, and that'll have more impact. And then it's just you like talking about the time change and the weather getting nicer and being. Yeah. super against it to me is gold okay? I, i'm having a hard time with knowing that i'm changing the clocks this and i probably might not even change my wall clock just to be like fuck you i'm not doing it go to hell wall clock i'm not doing it well, of course i'll have to do it right after i say that because i hate it all has to be in sync but you know i'll probably get a moment where I'm like fuck you not changing it and with that <laughs> and with that kim we have to say goodbye <laughs>
thank you to Kim for spending her time with us. She's hilarious. I love her. Yeah. She's she's the best. When I wrote her, she's like, fuck yeah, I'll talk to you. When are we talking? <laughs> oh, this- and Kim, I really hope you did not change your clock in your living room. <laughs> Gave it the finger. You know, it's funny. It's funny she flipped off her clocks and hates the time change. You know, we we hate it in this family. It's stupid. But as of this recording, they passed it in the Senate that they're going to get rid of it next year. And it just has to pass in Congress. Who knows what they're going to do? They're going to say freedom and something. And I don't know. <laughs> You're controlling time. I don't know. Anything could happen. Are we controlling time by doing it this way? That's what I would think. Isn't this freedom? This is freedom. Come on now. This is freedom. Let's not change the clocks anymore. So uh, thank you, Kim. You influenced that vote. Um, so thanks to Kim. And we want to thank the Black Tones. We're going to tell you about the song coming up as well. First, we have uh, a lot of other people to thank you, of course, for listening and telling other people about this podcast. We appreciate you. You are our marketing. So let everyone know they can download this just like you did. You can tell them better than we can. Um, we also want to thank our sponsors, Wonderground Coffee. They make amazing coffee and tea. We drink the shit out of it. We also want to thank Minor Figures. I also drink a lot of that as well. We're very caffeinated with our sponsors yeah, as and well. And Flying Apron. Flying Apron, where we get even more coffee. And uh, they got the I mushrooms coffee up there here. too. So good. There's mushrooms, a- coffee, <laughs> coffee drinks. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Reach out if you're a different kind of sponsor. We'll throw you into this podcast. You get discounts all over the place too at, uh, at those places if you mention the doctor and the DJ. I just mentioned that to our kids' friends who go up there all the time. So children and adults alike, use the discount. And again, we want to thank uh, everybody over at Ruinous Media for uh, producing this podcast. Joe, Pat, Chris, Jay. Thank you all very much. And um, again, we want to thank uh, Eva Walker and Cedric Walker. They are the Black Tones. And uh, Eva, by the way, is a DJ over at KEXP. She does a local show. She uh, she helps us out in programming over there. And um, I met Eva when she was teaching our youngest drums. Yeah, our youngest son. She was teaching him drums. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Eva Walker taught Henry drums. I met Eva, got to know her a little bit, and she hosts the local show, as I mentioned. Uh, and the Black Tones are amazing. Um, they played that big Sounders match as well, did the Jimi Hendrix uh, cover uh, performance, and uh, it was just awesome. So we thank them very much. They're working on new music. And uh, if you don't know about them, they uh, released an amazing album called Cobain and Cornbread. They also have a great way with names. They were named 50 most influential artists of the past decade from the Seattle Times here in town. And they most recently released a first single on Sub Pop as part of the Sub Pop Singles Club. And this song that I want to feature is the end of everything. And uh, Eva mentioned um, about this song before I, I play it is it, she said, this song is saying it doesn't matter what you believe in, the second coming, or whoever, or whatever. This is all going to be over, and it feels like humans might be speeding up that process. I wake up thinking about death, and I go to sleep thinking about it as well. I don't talk about it often, my mental health, but just how the underlying theme, a lot of my music is about that, and about space, and my complicated relationship with Jesus. He's like an ex I keep bringing up in my songs. So... (laughs) A heavy introduction to the end of everything, but the way that she delivers her songs and the way that they write songs, uh, they give me a lot of hope, too. It's the end of everything from the Black Tones here on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. Thanks for listening. You're not alone.